Welcome to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. If you're a fund manager, investor, or financial advisor driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvestor.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community, and we would love the opportunity to connect with you in person. One way to do that is to join us in Dallas, September 23rd and the 24th, at the National Faith Driven Investor Conference at Watermark Community Church in Dallas, Texas. We'll be recording live episodes and joined by friends like Andy Crouch, Finney Corvilla, and the leaders of this movement. Go to our website to register. While you're there, please send us any thoughts that you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions you have about being a faith-driven investor. All opinions expressed on this podcast, including the team and guests, are solely their opinions. Hosts and guests may maintain positions in the companies and securities discussed. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as specific investment advice for any individual or organization. When I first joined Christian Super, we didn't have this four pillars approach. We were just focused on negative screening, on taking out companies that we thought were evil. And as someone who cares deeply about justice and about right and wrong, I thought this is perfect. I get to sit down and I get to evaluate all the companies we could invest in and I get to find the evil ones and distinguish them from the good ones. And over the the kind of first couple of years in the role, I realized that all companies are sinful because they're all staffed by sinful people. And so I'm not going to find the good company, and nor am I going to find the utterly evil company. Even those tobacco companies that we've chosen not to invest in, they create jobs. And many of them have kind of philanthropic efforts that give back to the community. And some of them are even looking at ways of making their products more healthy uh, or less harmful. And so I kind of had this wrestle of, I thought my job was to separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. When it comes to companies, my job is to decide who's good and who's evil. And I quickly realized that I couldn't because everyone was on this spectrum from more good to less good, from more evil to less evil, because every company is filled by sinful people. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. Today, we're going down under. We're going to go to Australia with our guest, Tim McCready. Tim's done a lot of really cool things. He's the chief investment officer at Christian Super. Uh, He's been responsible there for the development of the fund's responsible investment approach, which he's applied across their entire portfolio, and now incorporates another couple cool things, negative screening and impact investing. He is also a part of Bright Light Impact Advisory, who specialize in impact and responsible investment management. They they provide a bestoke investment consulting and management service to institutional clients across both private, philanthropic, and government sectors. But what we're going to do today, and I love most about this episode, is we're going to hear how Tim talks about how he set out to create the perfect faith-driven fund. The perfect faith-driven fund. But then he realized... You know, we're all sinners. He's a sinner. Every company is led by sinners. And he talks very openly about how that shifted his perspective, some of the tough decisions that it led him to make, and how he stewards that calling today. Let's jump in with Henry and William talking to Tim McCready. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. This has been an addition that I've been looking to for a long time. I've been joined by William Norville, who many of you are going to recognize from his 
voice as my co-host, one of my two co-hosts on the Faith Driven Entrepreneur podcast. And many of you also know that William is a professional investor investing in faith-driven businesses with an emphasis on lower to middle market opportunities, investing in search funds. When he was at the Stanford GSB, he co-wrote the white paper with some folks about search funds, cares deeply about investing, obviously cares deeply about entrepreneurship. That's why he's been with us for the last year and a half on Faith Driven Entrepreneur. But I've asked him to join me today for a special interview that we're doing with Tim McCready. Tim is also a long-term friend, and I've known Tim for the last six or seven years. Tim is a devoted follower of Christ, a husband and a father, and a guy who has had a lot of experience in this space. We talk on this program about what does it look like to invest driven by your faith, understanding that God owns it all, and we have an opportunity to participate in the work he's doing on uh, bringing about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven with investment dollars by allocating investment dollars in things like public debt, public equity, private equity, mutual funds, ETFs, real estate, impact investing. These are all things that Tim McCready has done now for almost a decade. So many of us talk about what we might do and what our hopes and our aspirations are. Tim is one of the very, very few people that I know of that's actually been doing this with a degree, a high degree of intentionality for a decade. So uh, special treat for us to have Tim on the show. Tim, thank you for joining us. Henry, William, pleasure to be with you. And as we're actually joking about, um, and just less people just think that you're an investing wonk from the great country of Australia, I was also commenting on the fact that uh, you're the best spike ball player I've ever played with. It's a, it's a big compliment, Henry. Spikeball's not huge in Australia, but one day hopefully it'll be a, um, a, a national sport. <laughs> That's right. That you'll dominate in like you dominate in everything else in the Olympics. Uh, it, well, uh, anything anything that involves swimming, we're we're pretty good at. Yes, you are. Yes, you I'm not. Are. I'm not saying this is true or not, but Henry's never played spike ball with me, so I just want to point that out for the audience. <laughs> That's that right. He's the best spike ball player that Henry has played with. Yes, yes. I'm telling you, though. I'm telling you, my money's still on Tim McCready. I will also say, when it talks about swimming and Australians being good at sports generally, with a great per capita gold medal count. And Tim says that has to do with uh, swimming. I just found out this past weekend that spike ball is now available for the pool. It is now effectively a water slash swimming sport, which makes it squarely in the crosshairs of an Australian, I would imagine. Could be just what's needed to help the sport lift off here in Australia. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So now back to the faith investing side of things. Tim, you work uh, and have worked for a long time in a place called Christian Super. It's a super fund. A super fund in Australia means something a little bit different than a super fund in America. What is a super fund? So a super fund in Australia, basically the closest U.S. equivalent is a 401k. We are a fund where Australians, 27,000 of them, can keep their retirement savings. Uh, Saving for retirement is compulsory here in Australia. Government requires you to put aside 9.5% of your salary each month or each fortnight into a superannuation fund, a super fund, but you get to choose which one. Uh, And so we're one of about 100 authorized and regulated superannuation funds here in Australia that invests people's money so that they have enough for retirement. So how'd you get into that? What drove you into the space? Why are you passionate about investing? 
So I knew from before I finished school that I was interested in numbers and in finance. And so when I went to college, I studied actuarial studies and law, um, law because I was also interested in justice, but very quickly came to the conclusion that at least in, in the way I was looking at it, the sorts of law I was learning was less about justice and more about power. Uh, and so it became clear to me that kind of finance and numbers and investing was the place where I needed to build a career. Uh, and so I started out for four and a half years. I was working for a secular firm in pension consulting, in actuarial work, kind of calculating how much was needed so the company contributes to make sure that investors got what they needed when they reached retirement. Uh, about four years into that, uh, I was loving the work. I was loving the technical aspect of the work, playing around with spreadsheets and numbers and the finance, but felt like my work lacked purpose. And so I briefly explored becoming a high school teacher, looked at economics teaching and decided that that wasn't for me, probably lacked the patience to deal with teenagers on a daily basis. And then, to be honest, kind of fell into the role at Christian Super. I'd approached an old mentor for advice and he happened to be on the board of Christian Super and said, well, it sounds like the skill set you have is exactly what we need. Why don't you come work for us? That was nearly 14 years ago. And I guess it's pretty clear now looking back that that was God kind of pushing me into a role that has been amazing in terms of me being able to use my gifts for God's glory, growing me, challenging me in my own faith and being part of, I guess, building an idea of what it looks like to be a faith-driven investor. No, that's a great segue. I know you've written before on how an investment as a way to act on behalf of God as his ambassadors, as his representatives. Uh, that's a pretty big statement. I would love it if you would maybe unpack that a little bit. I hear that and I get really caught up with like, wow, that's exactly what I want to be. And then when it gets down to practical level as an investor, I think, ah, I'm not really sure how that works itself out um, in a day-to-day -day basis. So I think if as Christians, uh, as believers, we accept that God created everything that we can see, and as those who have given our lives over to Christ, that he not only owns everything because he created it, but he owns everything because we have given it to him along with our lives, then we have to ask what God wants us to do with the money that he's trusted to us. And that plays itself out in the way that we spend our money, in how we give and are generous with our money, but it also plays out in the way that we save. Uh, one of the things I get to do on the side is teach a class for uh, kind of gap year students, so students who finished school but haven't yet started college at one of the Bible colleges here in Sydney. And we explore what you can do with money. And there's basically only three things you can do with it. You can spend it now, you can give it away, or you can save it for later. And that includes paying down debt. And so I think we've done a bit of thinking about what it looks like to spend money as Christians in ways that is faithful to God and his plans for us. We've thought a lot about what it means to be generous. And I would absolutely affirm that as God's people, we're called to radical generosity in the use of everything we've been given, our time, our talents, and our money. But we've also been called to be faithful with that which we save that which we prudently set aside so that we can provide for ourselves and for others in the future. And so investing has to be an opportunity to work out the creation mandate given to humanity in Genesis of filling the earth and subduing it. Um, so what does that look like? Well, that mandate given was given for, I guess, two reasons from the very beginning. One was 
creation care, stewardship of the planet that God's given us, a planet that's full of resources that we can use for economic growth, for our own flourishing and well-being, but which we can also abuse and destroy and use up at a faster rate than what is sustainable. And so investing is also about human flourishing, uh, this idea that God has provided us resources, a planet to care for, but a planet to live on where we can see economic growth, where we can produce goods and services that enable people to flourish as part of God's plan for them. And so investing has to work towards these two ends. If we invest in ways that pillage the planet, ultimately we'll run out of resources. And not only will that be bad for creation and bad for humanity, it'll also be bad for investing because then the investments we have won't be worth anything. Similarly, if we're investing in ways that destroy human flourishing, that damage human well-being, uh, then we're not promoting God's plan for creation, but we're also investing in ways that are irresponsible and ultimately probably likely to damage our long-term investment returns because people will eventually realize that our products and services aren't helping them towards the life that they want. They aren't helping them towards abundance and well-being and flourishing. And so uh, I think at the very outset, we have to understand that investing is just simply deploying capital savings in ways that are productive. If they're not productive, we can't make a return. We can't make money out of investing. And so as we try to be productive, we want to be productive in God's plan towards human flourishing, human well-being, and care of creation, care of the planet. So that's a good framework. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to break that down a little bit, but just to revisit it, it sounds like you're saying that the goal of investing has got a couple parts, creation, care, human flourishing, and then I've also heard you talk about redemptive investing. Break those down for us a bit and then give us some examples about what are some investment dollars? How would you allocate investment dollars towards each of those things? What are some examples about what an investment in redemptive investing might look like or creation care? And how do you think about that? Yeah, so the, the first two of those, human flourishing and creation care, I think any investor should care about because ultimately if the investments we're making aren't being productive, then they're not going to make money. And as investors, we want to be excellent investors who produce good returns for our beneficiaries. There's 27,000 Australians who rely on Christian Super and the team here to make money for them so that they can enjoy a purposeful retirement. Um, so when we talk about human flourishing, and sometimes it's easier to talk about the negative examples as well as the positive examples to get the contrast. Uh, let me talk about a negative example there. I think investing in tobacco companies does not encourage human flourishing. Uh, it's an addictive substance that damages health and well-being, and it doesn't ultimately produce much for society. Uh, that's not to say that it's always wrong to smoke. It's not to say that everyone has to follow the same path that we've followed here at Christian Super in terms of divesting from tobacco. But we look at that and we say that's not a productive investment. That's not an investment that promotes human flourishing. We'd contrast that with some investments we've made in fair trade agriculture in Southeast Asia where essentially you've got coconut farmers who can sell their produce into the local market, but they're not necessarily getting a fair price. They can sell it to multinational conglomerates who aren't going to pay them well. Um, and we get in and the companies that we've invested in get alongside them, negotiate fair trade deals so that these farmers can receive a fair wage for the labor that they've put in, a fair recognition for the fact that they own the coconut fields and the plantations that are producing this coconut that's turned into oil, that's turned into beauty products, that's turned into cooking products, that's turned into all sorts of things that enable human flourishing. 
Then let's talk about creation care. For a long time, it was probably not as heavy an emphasis for us. But as we've looked at the creation mandate given to mankind in Genesis, and we've understood that this idea of stewarding the planet, this idea of tending to the garden means that We've been given these resources that are ours to use, but also need to be stewarded for future generations so that they have a planet that is both beautiful and functional for them to continue to flourish. There's certain types of things that we don't invest in anymore, uh, whether that's kind of wholesale logging of pristine rainforest for wood plantations, whether that's companies who kind of just pour their toxic waste into rivers in India or even in the developed world. We identify those companies that are pillaging creation rather than stewarding it and we don't invest in them. And what we invest in instead is things like renewable energy, things like recycling. We've got companies in our portfolio that are working out how to reduce waste and how to, uh, I guess, make more with less so that we can steward, so that we can preserve, so that we can care for the planet, both because the planet reflects God's beauty and because it's our responsibility to care for it so that future generations can also enjoy it. So that sounds all well and good. And I think that if you're an individual investor listening to this, you can understand and resonate with much of what you're talking about across redemptive investing, human flourishing, creation care. I get that. But you're a fiduciary. You've got 27,000 plus people, maybe I'll get the number wrong, but you've got thousands and thousands of investors who've trusted you with their retirement savings, who expect that there's going to be a return. And to some degree, maybe a large degree, maybe the entirety of the degree, you're judged by them and maybe regulators, other stakeholders, board of directors, by your ability to deliver return. How do you balance those types of redemptive types of investing with the need for increasing somebody's retirement account? Yeah. And so when we talk about the redemptive side of it, the part that we bring uniquely as Christians to how we invest, I've said that I think any investor should care about whether the companies that they're investing in are helping people to flourish, whether they're operating responsibly from an environmental perspective. But this redemptive aspect is unique to us as Christians, that just as in any kind of legitimate profession, there is a, we reflect God's glory in which we reflect the role that he's given us and the gift he's given us to play. So as Christians, Christian investors, as faith-driven investors, we want to be redemptive in the way that we invest. That looks different for different people. Sometimes that looks simply like telling the people that we're working with that we're Christians. We're called Christian Super. It's pretty clear who we are. And so I get up on stage to speak at pension fund conferences or at impact investing conferences. And people know that I'm a Christian. People know that I come from a Christian organization that bears the name of Jesus. And so we get an opportunity to share a bit of the reason for the hope that we have. We get to share why it is that we care about creation, not just because it's Mother Earth, but because God made it and it's beautiful. We get to share about why we care about human flourishing, not just because we're humanists and we care about humanity, but because we believe that every single individual is made in the image of God and deserves dignity and deserves respect and deserves an opportunity to flourish. It means that when we think about human flourishing, we're also thinking about spiritual flourishing, not just material well-being. Because as we know, Jesus tells us in Luke, life does not consist in the abundance of our stuff, but in our relationship with our creator. Uh, and so we do get to direct part of the portfolio towards investments that I would say are truly redemptive. Henry, as you know, part of that is through the work that you do at Sovereigns and the faith-driven businesses that you've invested in. Uh, full disclosure to our audience, Sovereigns 
Capital manages some assets on behalf of Christian Super in faith-driven businesses. We've also invested here in Australia in faith-driven initiatives in foster care, finding ways of reuniting kids who've been removed from their families for safety issues, helping those families to thrive, to flourish, to get to a point where the kids can safely return back to their parents. We've worked with church groups here in Australia to invest in, and I'm talking investment here, I'm not talking about philanthropy, as good as that is. I'm talking about investing in ways of helping prisoners to escape drug addiction so that when they're released from prison, they are less likely to reoffend. And this is where the commercial, the returns, the investing part of it comes in. I'd love to be able to deploy money into foster care or into prisoner rehabilitation or into youth homelessness or into disability housing just out of the goodness of our hearts. But we need, as fiduciaries, as a regulated institution, as people who are responsible for getting 27,000 Australians to a purposeful retirement, we've got to be great investors, not just great Christians, but great investors. We're also in a competitive landscape here in Australia. Uh, any Australian can choose the superannuation funds, the pension fund that they want, and they can move on a week's notice. A member, a beneficiary can ring us up and say, hey, I don't like you anymore. I'm moving to this other fund. And so we've got to be competitive in the marketplace. And we've had now over a decade of showing that you can get good investment returns that are comparable with the investment returns everyone else is getting in the marketplace and integrate Christian values into the way that you invest. Now, there's some investment opportunities we look at that are great from a human flourishing perspective or an environmental creation care perspective or from a redemptive perspective, but they just don't stack up investment-wise. And much as we might like to deploy our capital there, we can't. We have to be faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And that means investing it to get a good return. Um, we take into account risk. We take into account liquidity, fees, costs, taxes, diversification, all the things that a good investor should take into account. But we're integrating our faith into every aspect of that. I want to pause one second there. That's really intriguing to me. When I hear prison rehabilitation, yeah, my mind goes to philanthropy, right? Exactly what you said. And you did a great job of redirecting that. If you would take us a layer deeper, I don't know what you can share or what you can't, but what does that company look like? What was the return profile? What was the pitch for the business? Uh, I want people to hear, you know, hey, yeah, this is what we were going for and this is why we invested and here's the return profile that we hope to receive for making this investment. Yeah. Let me talk about a couple. So both of these, uh, the foster care and the prisoner recidivism, both of them are what's called social impact bonds. And so what we've got is a government, let's take foster care. It costs the New South Wales government here in Australia $50,000 each year to keep a child in foster care. That child is somewhere around four times more likely to end up unemployed uh, when they graduate from high school, if they graduate. They're about eight times more likely than the general population to end up in prison. So not only is the government paying $50,000 a year, but at the end of that investment, if you like, that the government has made, we've got a, a member of society who's less likely to be paying taxes because they're less likely to be employed, and they're more likely to be in prison and costing the taxpayer through that. And so if, and here's the critical point, if we can work out in the market a way of reducing the risk to these foster kids, of safely reuniting them with their families of origin so that they can have a stable upbringing in a home where they've got stability, they're able to stay there for the rest of their childhood. Not only does the government save the $50,000 a year it costs them to keep these children in foster care, but they're also much more likely to end up employed and not in prison, which, by the way, is really good for the kid, right? Like This is not just about oh, the taxpayer now instead of a drain on the taxpayer dollar, but the, 
individual flourishing of that child is much greater if they're able to find meaningful work and have a stable family. So here's what we did. The New South Wales government says, well, here's what it costs us to keep a child in foster care. If you can work out a program that costs less than that and produces better outcomes, then we're all in. And so what happens is we form a partnership. New South Wales government says, if you can keep kids out of foster care safely, we will pay you for each child that you get back safely in their family of origin. We're working uh, with a church-based organization to deliver this program where parents, particularly mums, come in and are taught skills about how to raise a child, how to feed them, how to care for them, how to discipline them, how to stay out of abusive relationships themselves. And what we do is we provide the capital that runs that program. Now, that program has had about a 65% success rate in reuniting kids with their families of origin compared to the base rate from non-intervention of about 20%, which means that as investors, when we work out all the numbers, we've walked away with about a 14% per annum return on that investment that we made. And there's a whole bunch of kids who are living with their families of origin safely. And there's a whole bunch of families now that have developed better skills. So you've created human flourishing at the same time as you've saved, in this instance, the government money and got a return turn for our investors. In the case of the prisoner recidivism, it's the same principle. It costs the government a lot of money when people end up back in jail. If we can deliver programs that treat some of the core reasons why they end up in jail, which is often related to poverty and drug addiction, we can actually reduce the likelihood that once they're released, they reoffend. And the government pays us through the church-based organization that we work with to deliver that program. Now, both of those are social impact bonds, where essentially the business case is we can deliver a better outcome than government at a cheaper cost. Across our portfolio, we've got different expressions of our faith, our redemptive investment. Some of the redemptive faith-driven investments we've made are just companies operating out there in the marketplace, competing against everyone else, not relying on public money or on kind of government support um, of a program. They're, they're just out there competing and winning to the glory of God. But across our portfolio, this kind of idea of redemptive investing just takes different expressions in different parts of the portfolio. That's amazing. Thank you for walking us through that. 14% return for that kind of program is just fascinating. I assume as an American, I, I can't invest in Christian Super. No, unfortunately not. We're restricted <sighs> to uh, restricted to people who are living or working in Australia. So you could you can always move to Australia, but uh, okay, there's other benefits that. to that as well. We've, we've, got, we've got beaches, we've got sun, we've got everything. <laughs> and you excel in water sports. I think we've already established that. For those of our listeners that are interested in social impact investment bonds, they do exist in the United States. They're growing popular in the Northeast and a little bit out West. And I think that that's going to be a great topic for a future podcast, just exploring social impact investment bonds. Tell us about some more stories, though, because I know enough about what you do to know that you can invest directly in the companies that provide returns. You invest in other types of funds. And, and actually, what I'd like you to do is, as you continue to talk about the stories where you do invest, talk about the delivery mechanisms that somebody might come across. For instance, negative screens. There's one where you can go ahead and you can look to screen things out. And then you've also made investments that go ahead and are more proactive in what they do, maybe more along the line of social impact investment bonds. But you've invested directly into companies that have returned good money. So just help us put it together because we talked about tobacco before. That's not human flourishing um, and screening some of those things out. But tell us more about the proactive investments you make and pick it up where you left on the social impact investment bonds, but maybe in some more stories that might be more accessible for our listeners. So 
As we at Christian Super have wrestled with what it means to be faithful in our context, we've come up with four things that we do that expresses our faith in our portfolio. And this is not because we think every faith-driven investor needs to adopt these four things. And in fact, the more I engage with other Christian investors and others in this emerging faith-driven investment community, the more I see the way that they integrate their faith and am challenged with what we could do in that area. But for us at the moment, there's four things. The first is what we've talked about with negative screening, identifying things that damage human flourishing, where we believe as Christians that it's just not responsible of us to to invest in those sorts of activities. That's things like tobacco, it's things like gaming, it's things like child labor, child trafficking, uh, the sex industry, and those sorts of things that Christians have kind of, from a moral perspective, taken a firm stance on for, for decades now. In some senses, that's a relatively small part of what we do, is just identifying those companies and removing them from our portfolio. The second thing we do is this idea of positive screening or, or ESG integration, the integration of environmental, social, and governance factors into the way that we invest. And this basically starts from a premise that if you express it in a secular way is companies that treat their customers and clients and employees well, that operate sustainably in markets where they can continue to have a competitive edge, are more likely to be profitable over the long term than companies that operate irresponsibly and unsustainably. Of course, from a faith perspective, we would say those companies that operate in accordance with the way God set the world up to work, that, that are contributing towards human flourishing, creation care, are more likely to be successful. A lot of this for us takes its expression through external asset managers that we use. About 75% of our portfolio is invested on our behalf by external managers. And as we appoint those managers, we're asking them, how do you choose the companies that you invest our money in? How do you look at their sustainability? How to evaluate their responsibility. And we're not just talking about corporate philanthropy here. We're talking about the extent to which a company understands its supply chain and the risks in that supply chain and is managing it effectively so that they can produce sustainable goods and services uh, that are more likely to deliver profits over the long term. Sorry, go Henry. Yeah, yeah. Give us an example there, like a specific company. And maybe you can't mention the name, but but a company that does this and this, they were raising equity at this kind of evaluation and make it real for us. Let me come, let me come back to it. I'll, I'll try yeah. and think of something. Okay. Um, yeah. So the third thing we do is we are active owners of the companies that we invest in. So that means we vote, we exercise the voting rights we have on shares. It also means that when we get the opportunity, we talk to companies as Christians, but even more than being Christians, we talk to them as investors who are interested in their long-term investment performance, their long-term stock price. We talk to them about areas of their business that we think are at odds with that. An example there from the last week, we've been, for the last decade, in fact, we've been talking to one of the large grocery companies here in Australia, company called Woolworths, who also happened to be Australia's largest owner of poker machines, or, or as I think they're called in the US, slot machines. Uh, what a lot of people don't know is that a very significant portion of the world's poker machines, slot machines are here in Australia. And Woolworths, the kind of supermarket company, was the largest owner of those machines which means that on the one hand, their corporate brand is all about fresh food and about caring for Aussie farmers and uh, Aussie communities. On the other hand, they're actively in those communities kind of taking money from farmers and taking money from working Australians through the gaming operations. And we've said to them for years that that's unsustainable, that ultimately people are going to see a disconnect between your brand as a really responsible provider of 
groceries to all Australians and your brand is an organization that's taking money from these Australians through your gaming operations. And just last week, in fact, they've announced that they are selling their gaming operations, their gaming and liquor licenses and focusing on groceries only, which we think is great from a faith perspective, but we also think is great from a bottom line perspective. In fact, their stock price jumped. I think it was 4% Mm -hmm. on the news that they were selling off that part of their business, which had been a drag on their corporate reputation over the last year. Now, we can't take credit for that. We weren't the only people telling that company that there was an inconsistency in their branding. But we, along with a lot of other investors and a lot of other advocacy groups, consistently gave them the message, not that we're Christians and you have to do what we say, but we're Christians and we care about the long-term performance of your company and we think that this aspect of your operations is detracting from that. And that's just one example of where we're trying to use our influence as a larger institutional investor to influence the direction of companies. And the fourth pillar for us, so we've talked about negative screening, we've talked about positive screening or ESG integration, we've talked about being active owners, active stewards of the companies we invest in, and finally, our impact investing portfolio, which is invested in solutions, solutions to human well-being, solutions to planetary climate creation care. And so it's in a range of stuff. It's invested in microfinance in the developing world so that entrepreneurs there can access small amounts of capital to start their own businesses and build a livelihood for themselves and their families. It's invested in microinsurance where those entrepreneurs can now start to insure themselves and their businesses against loss. It's invested in healthcare, in hospitals, in developing countries. It's invested in education, in student loans that enable poor students to attend universities in developing countries that they wouldn't otherwise be able to afford. It's invested in creation of meaningful work in communities where jobs are hard to come by. Uh, It's invested in renewable energy, in recycling, in energy reduction and efficiency. This represents about 10% of our portfolio in investments that are having tangible, intentional impact on our world for good to create human flourishing and creation care. Tim, I want to go back to one thing. Active engagement. Do you have a, a test of some sort? So when you think about a company that you know is doing some things that you don't think align with your value system and what God's called us to do with our investing, my guess is there's not. But I just wonder how you think through it. You know, is it, hey, let's use a company that has ninety percent good products, but ten percent tobacco, right? Something you mentioned earlier. Is that okay? And then you go lobby to change that as the company? Just how do you think through a decision like that? Because I think that's something I know I personally faced when I think about investing in public markets or when I think about mutual funds that have stocks that I don't really have a lot uh, you know, of say over. But then even a personal investment, I wonder, well, you know, I kind of know they're doing this or that, but I think most of the company's in the right direction. Uh, how do you think through that? When I first joined Christian Super, we didn't have this four pillars approach. We were just focused on negative screening on taking out companies that we thought were evil. And as someone who cares deeply about justice and about right and wrong, I thought this is perfect. I get to sit down and I get to evaluate all the companies we could invest in and I get to find the evil ones and distinguish them from the good ones. And over the the kind of first couple of years in the role, I realized that all companies are sinful because they're all staffed by sinful people. And so I'm not going to find the good company, and nor am I going to find the utterly evil company. Even those tobacco companies that we've chosen not to invest in, they create jobs. And many of them have kind of philanthropic efforts that give back to the community. And some of them are even looking at ways of making their products more healthy uh, or less harmful. 
And so I kind of had this wrestle of, I thought my job was to separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. When it comes to companies, my job is to decide who's good and who's evil. And I quickly realized that I couldn't because everyone was on this spectrum from more good to less good, from more evil to less evil, because every company is filled by sinful people. And so it really, for us, in terms of that line between what we will and won't invest in, it's tough because it's really subjective. There's some companies that clearly violate kind of the policies that we've put out of saying we won't invest in tobacco. But as you've said, what does that mean? And if a company is largely invested in something good, but has small parts of their operations that are damaging health and well-being uh, or damaging the planet. For us, the decision about when we engage versus when we kind of take the company out of our portfolio comes down to, do we feel like we have an opportunity to influence? Do we feel like the message that we have for this company is Yes, driven by our faith, but not unique to our faith. We're never going to persuade a tobacco company that they should stop selling cigarettes, right? It's part of their core business. Whether we approach them as Christians and say, we think all people are made in God's image and we don't think that this accurately reflects the image of God because it's damaging their health, or whether we approach them as from a secular perspective and say, we think that damaging the health of your clients is not a sustainable long-term strategy. Ultimately, that company is just going to turn us away because they don't share our worldview about what we should be working towards. Likewise, that example I spoke about earlier, when we approached the Woolworths, the grocery company, we didn't say, as Christians, we think slot machines are wrong. We approached them and said, we think that your branding, your messaging here is inconsistent and that ultimately that's going to cost you in terms of share price. So, so we engage where we think we have a perspective that is informed by our faith but is shared often by the broader community. We don't tend to engage, and this is a difference between the Australian and the US contexts, we don't tend to engage from a kind of gathering the votes perspective from a getting resolutions on the AGM agenda perspective. We tend to do it behind closed doors with company management where we think that there's a chance to influence a company in the right direction. And I would say this about all aspects of faith-driven investing. It requires discernment and understanding of where you are in the market, of how God's called you to express your faith uniquely in the way that you invest. And I guess a discernment of how that faith expression plays out in my portfolio, in your portfolio, whether that's Christian Super as an organization that invests over a billion dollars on behalf of 27,000 people, or whether that's someone who's investing $1,000 that they've got spare and trying to discern how their faith impacts that. Tim, one of the things you talked about before was that your sense is that when people invest towards human flourishing, that they can actually get better investment results. You talked about Woolworth being able to have an increase in their stock price when they got rid of some of their gaming or all of their gaming. Do you see that as a general rule? Do you see that that actually is, interestingly, the way that God's economy works? Is that a universal truth? Or do you see that that's not actually true and that there's sometimes that investing towards flourishing means that there needs to be some sort of sacrificial sacrifice in return? And just how do you balance that? It's really tough. I've given examples of investments that have worked really well for us. I can share examples of ones that haven't. We were early investors into renewable energy in developed markets. Back in about 2005, 2006, we deployed some capital into some pretty exciting technologies. And we deployed that capital expecting a market rate return. 
and it hasn't delivered. Just like any investor has parts of their portfolio that have been disappointing, that's true for us as well. Uh, we can say, well, but we were investing in ways that reduce our reliance on external energy sources. We were investing in ways that are clean and green and sustainable and responsible. And yet, for various reasons, kind of technological evolutions meant that some of the technologies that we'd invested in were obsolete now. Oil prices fell around that period. And so uh, other forms of uh, kind of oil and gas and coal became relatively more attractive. And we lost money. We didn't lose everything, but we didn't get the return that we wanted. But our experience has been over kind of the more than a decade that we've been doing this, that just like any parts of investing have good performers and bad performers, so it is in our portfolio. But that overall, investing responsibly, investing sustainably, investing with our faith very much at the forefront of what we do rather than something we relegate to when we leave the office on a Friday afternoon is good for our portfolio. That companies that operate sustainably and responsibly tend to, over the long term, demonstrate better share price performance than companies that don't. It's not universally true. And it needs to be done with excellence and with care and with diligence and with thoughtfulness. Some of the faith-driven investments and some of the impact investments we look at are really exciting from a human flourishing or creation care perspective, or even from a redemptive perspective. But many times we just can't get ourselves across the line when it comes to is this an investment that's going to deliver the investment performance that our members need? And Henry, you've seen this many times in the entrepreneurship space. Entrepreneurs who have a great idea that's going to create human flourishing and that integrates their faith brilliantly, but where you're just not convinced that they're going to execute in a way that's excellent or you're not convinced that the market's there and ready. And you might feel this heart desire to invest, but you know that you can't because you have a responsibility to shareholders, to investors, to stewards of capital, to generate the maximum return that you can for the risk that you're taking. We think, and in fact, this is formalized for us in our investment belief statement, we think that responsible investing is consistent with fiduciary duty, but that doesn't mean we're blind to the financial implications. We go in very much eyes wide open. We do heavy financial due diligence on all the managers that we appoint and all the investments that we make. Every time I deploy and the team at Christian Super deploys a dollar of our beneficiaries' capital. We deploy it believing that that's the best place to deploy that dollar from a financial perspective as well as from a kingdom perspective. I mean, that's the dimension of the work that I get to do, which is challenging, which is rewarding, which is we're solving for risk and return and faith integration. And we've got to get all three of those right. We can't compromise on any one of those or we lose our excellence. We lose our right to say to our beneficiaries, hey, we're looking after your long-term interests. So, Tim, dream with us just a little bit. You've been very thoughtful about this space in the industry for a long time. You're really a leader in the space through the work you do, both at Christian Super and then also at Brightlight, which is this advisory firm that you and many in Australia affiliated with Christian Super and others have set up. What are your hopes and your dreams and your aspirations for this industry over the course of the next 10 years? We do this podcast. It's episode number 1,375 in 10 years, and we're able to celebrate that what has happened. For me, one of the things that I've been challenged as I've kind of engaged with the faith-driven entrepreneur community and people like Praxis is understanding vocation, understanding calling, understanding rule of life and how we structure our lives to glorify God and to achieve not in our own name, but in his name, the things that we think he has called us to do. And for me, that looks like loving God with all my heart, loving my family, loving my neighbor, encouraging God's people. But, but in a professional context, 
I want to work for a just economy where people are treated with dignity as image bearers of God. And I want to see opportunities for followers of Christ to invest in ways that fully express their faith so that they can live out in the marketplace what it is that God's called them to live out. And so if that's a part of, I guess, my sense of God's calling on my life at this point in time, what do I want in 10 years? I want to see thousands, millions of God's people, whether they have $10 in the bank or whether they're investing billions or tens of billions of dollars on behalf of others, equipped and resourced to live out their faith in every aspect of their investment portfolio. That doesn't mean it looks like what Christian Super has been doing. We've been on a journey of kind of wrestling with, in our context in Australia, as a pension fund, what does it look like for us to be faithful stewards? I want to see millions of other Christians walking that same journey of wrestling with what it looks like to be faithful to God with their money in the context that he's placed them. And so I guess one of the things that excites me about this faith-driven investing community that's emerging, the existence of even this podcast, is the opportunity to have those conversations, to have iron sharpen iron, to kind of have people wake up and realize, hey, I'm not alone as someone in the investing community who wants to see God glorified, but doesn't really know when to start when it comes to that, doesn't really know what does that look like practically for me as a personal investor, as an investor of other people's money, as someone who perhaps works for a second investment organization? What does it mean to integrate my faith? If we can answer that question thousands upon thousands of times uh, or, or help others to answer that question, then, then that would be an awesome outcome. And that's going to lead to opportunities for followers of Christ to invest in ways that fully express their faith. To me, that's the exciting part about where we're heading. And if we're in 10 years time on this podcast, I, I hope that we're talking about the thousands of different ways that Christ followers are expressing their faith in the investment market. Maybe so. And as we do come to a close, Tim, we always like to ask our guests to point back to what uh, God may be teaching you through his word in this season of your life. Where's God taking you in his word? Uh, What's maybe coming alive in a new way or in a different way? Or we had a guest talk about Nahum the other day, which, you know, most of us didn't know existed. So sometimes God takes us to really interesting parts and shares all kinds of things with our listeners. So uh, where does he have you today? When I kind of started this journey and realized that there was so much in the realm of what it means to be faithful as an investor to explore, I felt God's leaning to go to Bible college, to seminary, and to learn more about him. And it took me eight years to complete part-time, but uh, at the end, I did an exit project on contentment, on, in particular, Paul's words in Philippians chapter four, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And just in the last month or so, I've been taken back there again. Taken back there firstly, because I'm still a greedy person. I have wrestled with contentment. I know that Christians are called to be radically generous and by God's grace, it's an area that my wife and I have been growing in over the time that we've been married and wrestling with God's word on this. But I still feel the pull to stuff. I still sometimes find it hard to believe what Jesus says in Luke, that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. I'm still operating in a marketplace that draws me back to wanting to have more. I'm still, particularly in the investment market in the investment world, I'm still in this environment where those around me seem to have more and there's the temptation to want a better house, a better car, a better holiday, um, better things. And much as I 
wrestle and continue to wrestle with trying to create contentment in myself. I know that that's something that is only happening through the work of the Holy Spirit in me. And so I've been challenged again with just how greedy my inner self is and how much I need to be content in what God has given in his provision for me and for my family in any circumstance, whether I have a lot or whether I have a little. And I suspect that's something I'm going to be wrestling with, not just for the next 10 years, but for the rest of my life as I become more like Jesus. Tim, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for your leadership in the space. Thank you for your thoughtfulness, your vision, your execution. And just we're, we're grateful that you'd be on the podcast with us. Henry, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. We're very, very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven investor community. Hey, the best way for you to stay connected is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvestor.org. And while you're there, we of course want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see people join the discussion now from all around the world. But it's also very important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your journey, one that you're proud of and one that you'll share with others. This podcast, it wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman, program director Johnny Wills, music by Carl Kegwell. You can see and hear more of his work at summerdregs.com and audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. Mm-hmm.